українське незалежне радіо. Today on Ukraine Watch from Ukraine's capital in Kyiv, I'm joined by foreign policy and security expert Alexander Khara, former official with Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council and currently a fellow at the Center for Defense Strategies. Alexander, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Hello, Lenovo. Pleasure to be with you. So I'm really interested to talk to you about what's going on at Ukraine's border, but I wanted to start with something that caught my attention in the Russian press yesterday. Um, there were comments by uh, President Vladimir Putin at a press conference with, for, with uh, French President Emmanuel Macron about the, uh, the agreement referred to as the Minsk Agreement. In 2015, it was an agreement between former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, and Vladimir Putin. It was a ceasefire that I think has been criticized by current Ukrainian President Zelensky as having some conditions that are uh, difficult for Ukraine to concede with and, impl and implement. Uh, the comments translated from Russia um, roughly were something along the lines of, like it or not, take it, my beauty. Now, there's been a lot of rhetoric, obviously, and many indications in the press and uh, from intelligence sources in the United States that a invasion by Russia of Ukraine is imminent. But uh, I got to say, this seems to me, and I'm a layperson, like it would be a very difficult war for Vladimir Putin. Uh, Ukraine is uh, roughly the size of the state of Texas. It's got a population that's hostile to the Kremlin. Uh, the West is talking about crippling sanctions. And uh, invasion is one thing, but maintaining an occupation of a hostile territory uh, seems like it would be not only costly, but difficult to sustain. Alexander, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that Putin is going to go through with this? Um, and will he be able to meet his objectives with uh, such a difficult prospect of war? Mm, okay, thank you. Yeah, may I begin with uh, just a bit correcting your words? Uh, you said uh, 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 Minsk agreements signed by the president of Ukraine. Uh, it's not right. Uh, we call them arrangements because it's not a, a legally a binding document for Ukraine. It's a political statement, a political agreement between Ukraine, uh, uh, Russia and uh, OECE. Uh, but Russia is trying to push the narratives that uh, all, all those uh, things are about uh, Ukrainians uh, or the Kievan side or Kiev regime, as they say, and uh, those people from Donetsk and Lugansk as as if they were a separate entity or they they had any agency at all. So we understand they are Russian proxies uh, uh, and they are fighting for the aim of Russia, not, not for, no, to, 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 to fulfill aims of Russia, not to be independent or autonomous or uh, to, to see to Russia. Uh, secondly, it was signed by the former uh, president of Ukraine, Mr. Kuchma, uh, so, according to the Ukrainian law on uh, um, on international agreements, and uh, there is an international international convention uh, on that matter, uh, it's not uh, uh, illegally binding documents. It's null and void because it, it violated Ukrainian uh, uh, domestic procedures, how international treaties uh, should be prepared and signed and and then implemented into the uh, Ukrainian legislation. So that's why we should talk about arrangements, accords but not uh, not agreements um, uh, we, we, when we uh, are talking about uh, mr putin uh, it's sort of a he said uh, how say he loves to uh, to to put some quotes uh, from the gangster world uh, for some reason i don't know even though he is representing uh, the one of the biggest countries on earth uh, and they claim they have the uh, separate civilizations the russian civilization with dostoevsky tolstoy andres but uh, he uh, he tends to use uh, the slang of the bottom of of, of society uh, and actually, he was um, um, manipulating with a lot of uh, facts uh, in his uh, press conference with Mr. Macron. Uh, and, and actually, Mr. Macron uh, seemed to be uh, not comfortable of, uh, uh, let's say, returning back and correcting uh, Mr. Putin's lies. Uh, for example, uh, Mr. Macron agreed uh, that those arrangements uh, were signed and that we need to implement them, even though he said that uh, uh, they were signed when there was no pressure on Ukraine uh, with a lot of uh, arms and uh, soldiers on our border. 
And actually, to these Minsk arrangements were assigned after Ukrainian military were defeated by the Russian regular forces in Ilovaitsk and Baltsova. Uh, so it, uh, those uh, uh, arrangements were a result uh, of uh, our defeat, and that's why uh, Mr. Macron was wrong. He, he, he should have known this and corrected it. Uh, there are some other things, like uh, lies that uh, uh, NATO is threatening uh, Russia, and that's why Russia is conducting uh, these uh, drills uh, on, the, on, the, on their own territory of Russia, I mean, uh, then uh, on Belarusian territory, uh, and then on occupied territories as well. I mean, Transnistria, it's a territory of Moldova, and in Crimea, which is territory of Ukraine. And I, I do not mention the occupied territories of Donetsk and Lugansk as well. So uh, he's manipulating, he's uh, putting pressure, he's trying to use the uh, leverage that he has uh, against Ukraine and Europe in general. He has some uh, uh, strategic goals with regard to Ukraine, like uh, getting back uh, to, to the sphere of influence. Uh, and he is trying to push this idea that uh, either Ukraine should refuse its goal to become a member of NATO, or uh, the West should refuse to accept Ukrainian bid for NATO. Uh, it's one of the strategic goals. Mm -hmm. It seemed to you, Alexander, that reaching that goal would be much more costly with either a ground or sea invasion, actual boots on the ground in Ukraine, as opposed to maybe what's traditionally in Putin's playbook, which is sowing discord, chaos, and that sort of thing. It seems like um, if he were to go through with an invasion, although all the indications, the, the troops and the equipment on the ground, uh, the rhetoric coming from both sides seem like, uh, from, from the perspective of uh, us in the West, that this is going to happen, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, let's go back to 2008, uh, when uh, Ukraine and uh, Georgia were refused to get membership action plan at the Bucharest summit. Uh, uh, so uh, at that time, uh, Germany and France actually blocked uh, our bid for this uh, document. And this document would uh, prove that we are a uh, candidate for the membership. So instead, uh, there was a political statement that uh, Georgia and Ukraine uh, are going to be member uh, of NATO in some distant future. Uh, so Putin received uh, assurances from Germany and France that it's not going to happen soon. And it was sort of, a, uh, in, in Moscow, it was a reading of such a statement uh, that it's green light for uh, invasion. And just in a couple of months, he invaded Ge uh, Georgia and he occupied uh, bits of territory. I believe it's something like 15% of the uh, Georgian territory, and Georgia is a quite a small state. Uh, so uh, after the uh, revolution of dignity of 2014, uh, he decided that this uh, welcome of power in Kiev uh, is uh, quite a comfortable time to um, annex a bit of Ukrainian territories, and certainly Crimea was the first one. And uh, he managed to do this uh, with, uh, with not, a lot, not a lot of blood. Even though Russians are saying that uh, not an, a single bullet was shot, it's, it's wrong. Uh, at least uh, two Ukrainians, one colonel and one uh, Crimean Tatar were killed uh, during this uh, operation. And it was not a sort of a, a referendum of local people who wanted to join Russia, but it was organized and staged uh, occupation. And actually, we can uh, bring a parallel with occupation of the Baltic states. So Estonia in 1939, uh, in the beginning of 40s, was uh, annexed uh, in the same manner. There was a fake election of the fake uh, communists uh, that were brought from Moscow, and then was, uh, um, let's say, announcement of the creation of Estonian Soviet Social Republic, and then uh, this uh, faked parliament uh, voted to, to join the Soviet Union. So we, we have the same, uh, let's say, uh, algorithm uh, implemented in Crimea. And then they were trying to shake in the, uh, let's say, Ukrainian position uh, in the southern and eastern uh, territories in the oblasts. Uh, and they, they managed to do it in Luhansk and Donetsk. But they failed to do this in, uh, in, in Kharkiv, Odessa, Dnipropetrovsk, uh, and some, some other regions. Uh, uh, so they, they failed the uh, Novorossiya project? 
Yeah, the whole idea of Novorossiya project is to, to cut the uh, to cut Kiev uh, from the sea because you know uh, it's uh, it's impossible to in, to imagine Ukraine or flourishing Ukraine or secure Ukraine without access to the Black Sea and certainly via Black Sea to the whole world. So the whole idea was just to cut all those Russian-speaking territories. Uh, and actually, I, I should say I'm uh, I'm actually I'm uh, uh, originally from Donetsk. Uh, it's uh, the stronghold of uh, pro-Russian support. Uh, I'm not Ukrainian by origin. I'm Greek. I'm ethnic Greek. Uh, I'm Russian speaker. I'm uh, Orthodox. But it doesn't mean that I I, I want uh, my people, my my children to live in the Russian world. Vice versa. I don't want the Russian world to be imposed on Ukraine. And a lot of uh, Russian speakers are fighting Russia still in the trenches of Donbass. Uh, it's not just, you know, the issue of ethnicity, of language or religion. No, it's about political identity and the willingness to live in a free uh, country and be a part of civilized world rather than the Russian world. So uh, that's why uh, he, he failed then. And uh, from that uh, period of time, he uh, he was strengthening the uh, let's say his uh, grip of Ukraine by uh, injecting uh, uh, re regular forces uh, in so-called Donetsk and Lugansk uh, army corps, and they are part of the Russian uh, military. So the the center is on the Russian mainland, and they are operating all those uh, soldiers of so-called republics. Uh, uh, up to, uh, yeah. there, I'm sorry, uh, but you bring up an interesting point. It, this is not a civil war that's going on in Ukraine. Not at all. It's not uh, at all. It just, not you know, sectarian war either. It's not, it's not like uh, other sectarian type of wars in the past. You mentioning that uh, Russian speakers and maybe even ethnic Russians are volunteering to fight and die to protect Ukrainian territory against, uh, against Russian forces and that the occupying forces in the so-called breakaway republics in the Donbass are really not breakaway, breakaway uh, republics at all, but rather Russian proxies. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. They just know, uh, uh, as I said, I'm ethnic Greek, and we have a Greek minor, minority uh, in Donetsk and uh, Mariupol and in between, and part of our villages are occupied by, by Russia at the moment. So uh, it, it just because uh, Ukraine became independent, uh, we had an opportunity to flourish, I mean, uh, uh, in, in terms of our uh, language, our culture, and other rights. Uh, and certainly if you have a look at uh, what, uh, how uh, other ethnic minorities live in, in Russia, and including Greek ones, certainly it's, it, we should not compare. And it's one of the reasons why uh, all ethnic minorities, and especially in Donbass, because it's a multinational uh, region, it's not, it's predominantly Russian speaking, but we have uh, villages, Bulgarians, uh, Serbians, even Serbians, even Ukrainian Koreans we have in, 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 in Donetsk. So uh, the whole uh, ethnic, uh, let's say, fabric uh, of, uh, of Ukraine is, is not compatible with something that uh, Russia is, is building. And if you're talking about Maidan, revolution, uh, Euromaidan, and then revolution of dignity, because we need to separate all the things. Uh, on, the, on Maidan, they were... Uh, You're talking about in 2014, after around the time of the annexation of Crimea, or before that, and the, uh, the, the popular protests that uh, essentially led to Viktor Yanukovych, the former president of Ukraine, fleeing. Yeah, 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 you're right. The beginning was uh, the students went on Maidan because they, they protested uh, Mr. Yanukovych refusing to sign the association agreement uh, with the European Union. And uh, they were just, you know, a bunch of people uh, again, uh, protesting against it. It's not, it was not a lot of uh, people on Maidan. But when they were encircled by riot police and, uh, and severely beaten, uh, all Kievans and a lot of uh, um, representatives of other regions came to Maidan because it was not about European Union or association agreement. It was about the way which uh, Yanukovych chose for our country, the Russian way, that uh, there is no uh, freedom of uh, thought, of, of uh, 
speech uh, of uh, free elections and other things. And certainly if we uh, agreed on such terms, uh, the next day someone else could be beaten or killed elsewhere in Ukraine. So a lot of people went not just because they wanted to be members of, uh, of European Union or whatever, but they wanted to protect Ukraine from falling uh, in, uh, in the Russian uh, way and uh, into Russian sphere of influence. And it's, it, it was about uh, revolution of dignity, about dignity. So on Maidan, there were uh, different uh, people of uh, any ethnicities. We had Ukrainians, Russians, uh, Greeks, uh, Jews, uh, Armenians. And actually symbolic that uh, the first two uh, gentlemen who fought from the right police bullets were of Belarusian and Armenian origin. They were not ethnic Ukrainians. Yeah, so it, it, show, it, it shows uh, how uh, this re revolution about identity, political identity, rather than ethnic or religious identity. The only group that was not presented or was pushed out of Maidan, it was the leftists, it were communists and socialists, because yeah, they are traditionally pro-Russian, and they were not happy with uh, Lenin uh, being uh, brought down near uh, Bezarabska uh, Square. So, so, uh, so it's not about ethnicity. It's about Ukrainian uh, political nation uh, defending its right to to be in dignity, to be a, a member of the Western civilization, not the Russian world or the uh, let's say uh, this Eastern uh, autocracies. Uh, so uh, Putin was fueling this conflict uh, on Donbass, uh, pretending that they are just mediators and uh, all locals are uh, fighting for their rights. And actually, if you have a look at the first uh, leaders of so-called republics, they were Russian citizens and Russian FSB, uh, I mean, secret police uh, operatives. They, are not, they were not uh, representatives of the local elites. And uh, in, in Donetsk, we had uh, residents of the... It wasn't real. It wasn't an actual... There weren't actual grievances by Ukrainian citizens being brought against some kind of tyrannical government, but rather more like a, a false flag operation. Oh, that's, that's right. Uh, we have Mr. Akhmetov, who is the richest guy in, in Ukraine, uh, and his stronghold in Donetsk and in Don Donetsk region in general. So why on earth uh, some Russian citizens uh, with no relation to Ukraine in general uh, were heading uh, the Donetsk People's Republic rather than uh, someone from uh, the encirclement of Mr. Akhmetov or Mr. Uh, Yanukovych, uh, I would say. So uh, it's, it was a suggestion of fake uh, entity, the, the state-led uh, that they, the Russians are trying to, to portray it as a uh, separatist entity, which is not. So uh, the whole idea was uh, to, to have this uh, Trojan horse, as we, we, we call it in, in Ukraine, to inject into our political and legal space and to have ability to undermine Ukrainian, uh, let's say, decision-making process with regard to the domestic and foreign policy issues. So they wanted to, to control the whole of Ukraine via those uh, proxy forces. And uh, Mr. Poroshenko, the previous president, and Mr. Zelensky refused to follow this logic. They refused and still, and I hope they will be not changing, I mean, the president, uh, president Zelensky will not going to change uh, the position of Ukraine, that they're not going to talk to the Russian proxies as they, they have any agency, no. Secondly, uh, we could not uh, begin any political uh, discussions uh, and uh, the, the elections on those territories before uh, the security guarantees are, um, are implemented. I mean, the ceasefire, uh, the then uh, withdrawal of the heavy uh, armament and troops uh, from the front lines, uh, and then uh, the presence uh, uh, and the, you know, let's say, uh, ability to monitor uh, all those processes by the OECE, uh, uh, the SMM, which is the um, uh, monitoring, special monitoring mission. Uh, and after that, we can talk about political settlement, and certainly this political settlement should not be uh, in such a way, has, has not, should not be done in such a way to damage uh, uh, Ukrainian constitution, the legal order, and democratic uh, procedures. Uh, and we are against a lot of things that the Russians are trying to uh, impose on us. But uh, talking about the reason why uh, Russia is escalating now, uh, there, there were several factors in Ukraine, in Europe, uh, in the United States, and certainly in, in Russia. In Ukraine, 
President Zelensky and uh, the National Security Defense Council uh, uh, just um, uh, stripped licenses and, and actually closed down several pro-Russian uh, media channels in Ukraine. Uh, then uh, Mr. Medvedchuk, who is the uh, Ukrainian national, but uh, he is uh, godfather of one of the childs of Mr. Putin. They have close relations. And, and he was uh, sort of a mediator or fixer between uh, Ukraine and Russian political elites. And he was the guy who, was, uh, who has a long record of uh, bringing uh, down Ukrainian interests and bringing Ukraine closer to Russia. He was one of those after all sorts of constitutional changes uh, in 2004 when the previous the Orange Revolution uh, began. And he was dealing, he was a shady dealer uh, with gas, oil and some other uh, things with Russia, enriching himself but selling Ukraine. So now he's in court defending himself uh, and uh, he's not making all those uh, things that he used to. And it was uh, actually so important uh, that uh, our government has done such a thing because uh, Putin lost uh, control over the minds of Ukrainians uh, via propaganda channels and ability to influence uh, uh, the, uh, the politics and the, the uh, let's say, decision-making process in the highest uh, offices of this country because Mr. Minichuk is, uh, is uh, under investigation and in, in court. Uh, so that's why the only uh, tool available for Putin is the, the threat of use of force and use of force. And that's why we, we, we believe it was one of the reasons uh, he, he, he began this escalation. But there are some other aspects like the United States. Uh, and you know that Ukraine is in, uh, actually one of the uh, domestic factors of uh, American politics. Uh, Ukraine caused one of the impeachment trials of Mr. Uh, Trump. Uh, and uh, nowadays uh, the Republicans are competing with Democrats, uh, who is the best defender of Ukraine and who is the most harsh uh, with regard to Russia. Uh, so that's why uh, Mr. Putin decided that there is a possibility and the narrow uh, window of opportunity for him to uh, have this uh, great deal or whatever you call it uh, between the United States and Russia on expense of uh, Ukraine and other European states. And there is an only possibility to have such a deal before uh, Democrats are going to lose uh, control over the Congress. Uh, I'm just um, I'm following Good Judgment uh, project. Uh, it's a crowdfunding um, of a, a crowd. Uh, let's say they're asking crowd about uh, political and other things, and it's and and it it happened to be that uh, sometimes the 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 number of people and ordinary people. Are, are judging something in the same way, I mean, in the same way of, of accuracy as experts. So they're saying that uh, Democrats are going to uh, lose both Senate and the, the House. Uh, and that's why Putin need, needed to do this uh, as soon as possible. And certainly we know that uh, Mr. Biden uh, uh, was uh, directing his government and his, his apparatus uh, uh, towards the competition with China. And uh, uh, Russia was not uh, on his agenda before uh, Putin decided to, to, to bring this, uh, to bring his attention to Russia in April when he uh, amassed a lot of uh, troops and uh, weaponry on our borders and he received uh, the sanctions. He waived the sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, allowing it to be completed. That's the pipeline that bypasses Ukraine and goes directly to Germany. It seems, yeah. like, I've been pleasantly surprised. It seems to me that any politicians of consequence in the United States uh, I'm not talking so much about the House of Representatives, but rather the Senate, um, where treaties are ratified and so forth, and uh, where you know, actions of the president have to be reviewed as well when it comes to foreign foreign intervention. Um, I've been pleasantly surprised that it seems like uh, politicians of consequence on both sides of the aisle in the United States have been supportive of Ukraine. Um, and also, it seems that Putin's actions have sort of solidified the West against him. Uh, the, the thing that still sort of pops up in my mind is we have clearly, I mean, I think you've laid it out, there's a values-based argument of why to support Ukraine. It's a democratic country. It's part of the democratic, liberal democracy world. 
But what is the, what would you say to Americans or people in the West who might think, is it worth it to challenge Russia? Is it, is, is, can we find peace by just conceding? Or, or what, what's the other argument here? What's the, what's the practical side of this? First of all, you should have a look at the American history. Uh, the Americans were reluctant to interfere on early stages, uh, but they were dragged into the First and Second World War. So uh, they, a lot of Americans lost uh, their lives uh, saving uh, Europe and the whole uh, free world uh, from Nazi and from imperial uh, fighting. So uh, it's something like that. Secondly, uh, it's not just Ukraine that Putin wants. Uh, if you, there is a so-called Primakov doctrine. Uh, Primakov was uh, once a minister of foreign affairs of Russia and prime minister. Uh, uh, so uh, he formulated the doctrine that uh, uh, Russia is interested in, in, the, in uh, multiple world, meaning that uh, it's not just the United States who is running the world, uh, but uh, some other actors like China and Russia. So in, in the Russian view, there should be three great powers. Secondly, uh, Russia needs to regain control over the uh, former Soviet republics and especially Belarus and Ukraine. Uh, they need uh, Ukraine and Belarus for various reasons from demographic and, you know, Russia is just 140 million people living there with a lot of uh, not Slavic origin and uh, a lot of people do not uh, speak, uh, speak Russian or they are Muslim or Buddhist, not, not, not Christians. So Ukrainians are pretty, pretty uh, let's say, uh, valuable asset uh, for, 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 Russia, for Russia to have. Uh, there is a, uh, the um, concept of strategic debt because uh, you know uh, they need to have this sort of a buffer between Russia and uh, Western Western countries, and so on, so on. And certainly, without uh, resources of Ukraine, it's not possible to uh, to strengthen Russian economy and Russian military and Russian, uh, let's say, Russia. Um, we will still have a lot of. Um, techno technological stuff and especially in defense sphere so they, they need uh, this uh, to, to be more stronger uh, and then they need us to use as a leverage against uh, Europe in general and against the transatlantic unity and we've been uh, witnessing this uh, recent weeks uh, how Russia was demanding security guarantees for itself uh, and trying to just to widen this reef between Europeans and the, the Americans and Europeans. So if I return to uh, back to the uh, Primakov doctrine, the, the, the third point is to stop NATO or to dismantle NATO. And, and fourth po point is uh, to, uh, to leverage uh, China against the United States. So uh, the Russians are acting in such, a, uh, let's say, framework. Uh, they, they need Ukraine uh, not just to, to, have, uh, to stop and to have Ukraine as, as a price uh, for, for something, but they need to, uh, to uh, you know, advance their interest and advance their ability of influencing uh, Europe and, uh, and NATO, I mean, European uh, alliance of NATO, and with the only way, with the only aim just to dismantle it. Because it's not possible for Russia to regain its super, uh, superpower status if uh, they have neighboring uh, European Union, which is a soft power, uh, which is a strong economic power, a huge market. Uh, and uh, if, if uh, there is NATO, uh, and certainly uh, the United States as a, the pillar of, of, of NATO. So that's why they, they, they're using Ukraine against uh, the, the, the Europeans uh, in this sense. And I believe it's not in the in interest of uh, the United States uh, to lose uh, um, the strongest uh, alliance, uh, and especially if you're talking about possible uh, conflict or competition uh, with China. It's much better to have uh, Europe united, free, at peace uh, uh, as an asset uh, of the United States rather than fragmented or uh, aligned with China or with Russia or whatever. So that's why there are a lot of uh, strategic arguments uh, um, that goes beyond uh, the the uh, value-based uh, approach that, you know, Ukrainians are struggling for freedom. They are, actually, it's one of the mm, things that uh, uh, we just, we are not happy with. A lot of leftists, liberals uh, in Europe and in, in, in the United States are reluctant to support Ukraine uh, and they are so sympathetic to Russia. 
we can uh, describe what's going on between uh, Ukraine and Russia as an anti-colonial war. Because Ukraine was a part of Russian Empire and then Soviet Union, and it was a de facto colony of, of, of Russia. So uh, I'm just surprised why, why uh, all those leftists across the world uh, uh, do not uh, see this parallel. And they, they agreed on, on some Russian role, and Russia is uh, sort of uh, fighting the American Empire, and that's why we need to support it. Which is, uh, well, I don't want to say bad words in, in, in air, uh, but uh, Russia is empire and the neo-imperial uh, thinking is uh, flourishing in Russia. Uh, and there is not, nothing left in, in I mean, uh, le of leftists in, in, in Russian politics. Uh, it's uh, ultra-right. It's militaristic. Uh, uh, it's not conservative. If you have a look at the uh, numbers, uh, opinion polls and numbers in statistics, uh, whether Russia... Uh, making good uh, in records like uh, abortions or uh, the alcoholism or drug addiction or other things. Uh, it's not going to be an example of a conservative country. And, and if you're talking about religious things, it's not. Uh, religion is a tool of uh, politics in Russia. And uh, Russian Orthodox Church is a tool of foreign policy of Russia. They are trying to use it to undermine sovereignty of other countries. And we've seen it in Ukraine. Unfortunately, uh, Ukraine uh, was uh, granted the autonomous church by our mother church in Constantinople, which is... It was, uh, Absolutely amazing. Uh, we, we were dreaming about it for, for a long period of time. So the, the, there are uh, a lot of things are intertwined. Uh, I mean, political, cultural, language, and other things. Yeah, I find it interesting. Uh, it's certainly concerning that traditionally there have been these sort of left voices who have been Russian apologists. And what's been really concerning to me too is um, in American media, at least, there are some right-wing popular pundits who have been openly siding with Russia. It, it, seems, uh, it seems counterintuitive that that would happen, and it's strange that it's happening in this sort of politicized landscape. There's sort of this populism that's springing up, not only in America, but sort of all over the, all over the Western world. And that, maybe that's why you know, Vladimir Putin saw his, his moment. He maybe saw some weakness or you know, smelled blood in the water and thought this was his chance. But I also wanted to ask you what you thought of the idea you were mentioning uh, you know, sort of self-preservation in a way of the, of the Russian regime. And when uh, Vladimir Putin or Russians see a free and democratic Ukraine with a market economy, and they look at Ukraine as somewhat to be a you know, population of, uh, or in their view, you know, they're Slavs, but in their view, maybe a similar or the same country, even though it's, it's not, not really true, um, it undermines the authoritarian kleptocratic regime that Putin has because Russian citizens will see, hey, it's, it's possible to live in a free country. Well, it's a popular thesis uh, in the West, uh, but I do not share uh, enthousi enthusiasm about it uh, for several reasons. Uh, uh, just firstly, uh, if you have a look at the Russian history, there were just a small period of time when there was a relative uh, freedom in that country. I mean, during the uh, Russian Empire and then uh, the Soviet Union, and now uh, during this period of time. So uh, democracy is not something that uh, is really uh, of value for majority of Russians. Uh, secondly, uh, democracy is about middle class, although it's independent from the state. But if you have a look at the composition of the Russian economy, a majority of resources are controlled either by, directly by government or semi-governmental structures. So a uh, majority of Russians are from military or security apparatus or uh, the uh, civil servants uh, or they work for state corporations or, or they, they are from small companies but work for the state corporations and there are pensioners. So majority of them depend on the um, state budget and state budget is controlled by Moscow, even though it's Russian Federation, but in reality, it's unitarian state. It's more unitarian than unitarian Ukraine. So that's why uh, the, the layer of those who are not uh, dependent on the uh, resource-based economy 
uh, it's so small and it's so widespreadly, uh, let's say, spread uh, across the Russian West uh, territories. Uh, so it's difficult for them to accumulate and to make some pressure to, to the central government and to, to demand for uh, more freedom and for changes. And after 2014, uh, Putin was uh, well, squeezing all those liberals, uh, all those uh, free-minded people out of Russia. They are either in jail uh, or uh, drinking because it's, it's sort of a, uh, you know, escaping uh, the, this uh, hardship of this world, or they are just uh, outside. I, and it's certainly I should mention some uh, being killed, like uh, Mr. Nimtsov and some, some others. So uh, I do not believe that, uh, you know, there is something that uh, shows there is a possibility uh, in Russia to, to change their mind. Then uh, uh, I'll bring a bit of uh, numbers, like uh, Luada Center is one of the liberal uh, opinion poll centers uh, or sociological centers in Russia, and I, I have no doubt in, in, in their uh, cor correct numbers. So 86% of the Russians still uh, love that, uh, that Russia annexed uh, Ukrainian Crimea. Uh, some 65 or 63% uh, support Putin. Uh, in, in his actions. But at the same time, uh, the half of the Russians, 45 or so uh, percent, are not happy with the direction Russia is going. And the, almost the same number are happy with this direction. So the Russians do not connect the dots between the uh, annexation of Crimea, the war on Donbass, uh, then uh, as a reaction of the West, uh, sanctions imposed on Russia, and under, uh, which undermined uh, the, the economy and the, the, the uh, well-being of uh, each and every Russian, except of uh, Putin and his uh, cronies like uh, Mr. Abramovich or Rottenberg, those, as we called uh, the cooperative uh, uh, lake. Uh, they, they, they knew each other for uh, several decades uh, because they had dacha or villas uh, nearby. Uh, so those guys are rich ones. They're, they're making a lot of money. They're better off uh, rather, than, uh, rather than feeling all those pressures uh, from the West. So the Russians do not connect these dots between the uh, actions of their government, their support or silent support. It doesn't matter whether you go, uh, they are voting for Mr. Putin and, and his uh, fake uh, United Russia party, or you are just you know, silently agree with what they are saying. And you are proud that your country is annexing uh, territories of the, your brother nation, as they called us. Uh, or you are threatening, or your government is threatening uh, the United States to turn, to turn the United States into the radioactive ash. Uh, or they are very proud of their military and especially nuclear uh, forces. So uh, it's, it's something, I believe it's uh, more to psychologists to consider whether it's normal uh, thing or it's a sort of a uh, trouble uh, from the medical point of view. Uh, but uh, I don't think it's, it's going to work. And Putin is using this fear of the Russians that they came back uh, to the 90s, uh, when there was no, uh, let's say, stability, there were gangsters, uh, there the, the were no jobs, uh, and there were no goods to buy. Uh, but in reality, they have these gangsters in form of uh, uh, National Guard and the, the FSB and uh, riot police and others. Uh, and they have uh, no jobs because they are losing jobs because you know they 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 are dependent on the uh, commodities and when the prices on commodities were low, uh, there were not enough money to 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 carry carry on all those social programs. And certainly there is no freedom uh, like it was in nineties because uh, there is no say, single channel TV channel in Russia uh, independent from from FSB or. Even so-called liberal uh, channels like Echo of Moscow uh, are owned by Gazprom Media uh, and some other newspapers uh, that uh, pretend to be independent, uh, they are controlled by, by FSB. So it's an Orwellian, Orwellian world when TV, TV is commanding and TV is forming reality. And so that's why I do not believe that the Russians uh, would have a look at Ukraine, our successes, and would decide that uh, they can make uh, the same success in their own country. And uh, certainly there are other divisions like um, 
national republics or Far East where people are closer to Japan or China rather than to Europe. So they're not really interested in what's going on here. They see on, on their own eyes, uh, with their own eyes, uh, uh, how China is successful and how China is advancing its uh, influence in, in those regions in Siberia. So uh, I, I, I do not believe in the thing, but uh, if uh, it's helpful uh, for the Americans to think uh, in such a way, uh, it's okay. I don't mind. Well, so let's talk about the worst case scenario then. If, if Putin were to actually invade and try to occupy the territory of Ukraine, I see a threat to NATO, but I want to get your thoughts on this. Um, what would the consequences of Russian troops on the border with direct border with NATO have on Europe and the United States? Uh, well, we're we just uh, uh, in the middle of the Russian military drills. And actually tomorrow on the 10th of February, uh, they are going to conduct uh, nuclear drills as well. Uh, uh, recently, uh, a couple of uh, strategic bombers uh, were landed or were patrolling and then landed in, in Belarus. Uh, then a strategic, uh, strategic uh, interceptor with uh, uh, the hypersonic weapon uh, was landed in uh, Kaliningrad, which is a Russian enclave uh, in the Baltic. So uh, the Russians are going to use these nuclear drills. They, they postponed them because uh, traditionally they've been holding them uh, on, uh, on autumn, but they decided to hold them in, in mid-February, uh, March. And certainly it's a strong signal uh, to the West uh, that uh, we, we are going to uh, use a nuclear, uh, nuclear threat, at least not if not uh, nuclear uh, arms uh, and per se, uh, if uh, the West is going to do something and to support Ukraine. Uh, and actually uh, in 2014, uh, when Russia was annexing Crimea, and after that uh, Putin was uh, talking uh, to to a journalist, he admitted that uh, uh, there were no green men, little green men, they were Russian operatives, and Russia uh, put on a high alert uh, uh, its uh, strategic uh, nuclear forces. So the history repeats itself in, in, in this case. So it might be a sort of a signal, uh, do not, uh, let's say, uh, support Ukraine, uh, or you, you, you might have uh, some big troubles. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, conventional forces in Belarus uh, making drills with Belarusian armed forces. And I should uh, remind uh, the listeners that uh, Belarus is in Union State, and it has been a Union State for a couple of decades. They have joined, uh, uh, joined uh, force operations. They have joined, uh, uh, let's say, committees between the Minister of Defense and Ministry uh, of Foreign Affairs. Uh, they see NATO as a threat uh, to the national security of uh, Belarus. And actually, what's interesting, uh, in December last year, uh, so-called president of Belarus, Mr. Lukashenko, and he is not uh, recognized as a legitimate uh, leader of the country because he uh, forged election and he was killing and beating and torturing his uh, citizens who uh, raised against him in peaceful protest. So uh, he uh, launched a change to the constitution of Belarus, uh, uh, wiping out the clause that Belarus is uh, is non-nuclear uh, state. So it means that uh, he creates a legal ground, uh, legal uh, framework for uh, for Russia to deploy nuclear arms uh, to Belarus, which would uh, threaten first and foremost NATO countries, the Baltic countries, Poland, uh, and, and, and the northern. Uh, northern European countries. So, so it's direct proliferation. We're talking about nuclear threat escalation. Yes, yeah, that's, that's right. And actually, in 2014, right after Russia annexed uh, Crimea and uh, integrated into its legal uh, space, uh, the special units of the Russian Ministry of Defense and the General Chief of Staff uh, were deployed to Crimea to restore uh, the facilities uh, built and used by the Soviet Union to storage nuclear arms. It, it's in Balaklava, which is uh, one of the picturesque, the most picturesque places in Crimea, and Feodosia. So I believe that uh, the, the Russians already deployed uh, nuclear arms uh, to Ukraine and Crimea. 
even they denied it, but uh, from the other hand, Mr. Lavrov, the, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, said that uh, since it's Russian territory, I mean Crimea, uh, he has all rights uh, to deploy uh, all kinds of weapons, including uh, nuclear ones, and it's, it does not um, possess this sort of a, a violation of international uh, law, international um, uh, agreements uh, signed by Russia. So Russia is uh, threatening the world with nuclear arms and possibly, I don't know whether you have seen uh, Putin talking about a new generation uh, uh, nuclear uh, missiles and other things. And uh, in his presentation, uh, one of these missiles were hitting something closer to uh, uh, Florida, I mean, in shape of uh, Florida. So he is using um, nuclear blackmail uh, against the West um, since 2014. And certainly if uh, there is invasion in Ukraine uh, and if there is a worst case scenario with a lot of casualties uh, on both sides, certainly on both sides, but uh, so we, 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 can, we can take care first and foremost about Ukrainians. And it could be some two, three, or whatever million of uh, refugees uh, from Ukraine into the neighboring countries if uh, Russia is, uh, is capable of uh, holding this territory and putting their boots on the ground. So it's going to, you know, let's say, shake uh, the European uh, stability. And, and the, the, you, you, you know that uh, all those refugees from Syria uh, in 2015 and 16 uh, that fled uh, to the European countries and particularly to Germany undermined uh, political stability in those countries. And Mrs. Merkel, the former chancellor of uh, Germany, lost a lot of points uh, uh, by, by inviting, by uh, accommodating all those in need uh, on their territory. So uh, it's going to repeat itself uh, if uh, Putin uh, decides to go nuts and to, to invade Ukraine in, in full-fledged war. Uh, and certainly it's going to uh, escalate because uh, we, are, we, we have will to fight and I'm not talking about just the government. Uh, and President Zelensky was saying that uh, Ukraine is ready to defend itself. Our armed forces uh, are ready to, to defend ourselves. And fortunately, and because of the assistance of uh, our uh, foreign partners, first and foremost, the United States, uh, we have new, uh, new arms like uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles or NLAV from the United Kingdom. And we have a lot of other things uh, that are going to, con uh, to turn uh, this uh, invasion to hell for Russians. Uh, and Ukrainian civil society is not going to just uh, stand by and watch how uh, the Russians are openly invading Ukraine. We have a lot of uh, groups uh, who are training now, I mean, just civilians with no military uh, background. And they are um, conducting all those drills, uh, the, the urban warfare or uh, ambushes or whatever uh, that they are up to uh, to, to defend uh, our cities. So it's not going to be an easy walk uh, for, for, for Russia. And all those factors, like our willingness to defend ourselves, the readiness of our armed forces, we have two, uh, 260,000 uh, strong uh, armed forces. Uh, we have uh, something like 400,000 of those Ukrainians who went through the conflict in east of Ukraine. So they, they know how to fight the Russians and they have no uh, sentiments. Uh, so they will be killing whatever, whatever nationality or uh, language uh, they speak if they cross uh, our border. And we have a lot of Ukrainians, just ordinary Ukrainians who are preparing themselves uh, for, for this war and for this fight. So that's why uh, even though the Russians outnumber outgunned us, but uh, they are not going to, to have an easy walk into Ukraine. Is that the key, you think, to sort of stemming or resisting Putin's aggression is uh, not only the threat of sanctions, but a, sh a show of force? Sure. Uh, just the only thing uh, Putin understands is force. And the, the borders of the Russian world uh, ends where they, they just have a punch in, into their chin. And certainly uh, it's, it happened, uh, unfortunately, it happened uh, near Donetsk and Lugansk, not in Crimea. We had an opportunity to stop them uh, there. Uh, but at that time, there was a vacuum of power in Kiev. There was not legitimate, uh, let's say, pre uh, President Yanukovych fled the country, and uh, we, we had some 
political tensions and those people who were then, uh, um, let's say, headed uh, Ukraine for some time uh, before elections, at that time there was a political vacuum. And the Russians, uh, uh, the Russians uh, has been preparing for such a thing for a, lot of, for a long period of time. I should remind you that uh, uh, the Russians, uh, let's say, uh, questioned Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity ever since 1991. And in 1992, 1993, and 4, they've been trying to uh, annex Crimea via their proxies. Uh, the, 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 it was an autonomous republic, and there was a pro-Russian and actual Russian citizen elected as a president of the republic. And he was um, trying to, to, to push uh, forward this uh, annexation. At that time, fortunately, we had a pretty capable uh, security service and the military, and so they just... Uh, uh, they just uh, seized an opportunity to stop uh, this so-called separatist movement uh, and, and, and kill it uh, in, in the beginning. But unfortunately, in 2014, we were in a bit different shape and uh, position, and we, we, we lost uh, control over Crimea. Uh, and then there was, uh, um, let's say, popular appraisal uh, of uh, ordinary Ukrainians uh, who saw that the government was not able to do something with Crimea, and they decided that the Russians could uh, repeat in Donetsk, Lugansk, and other regions, and so they took arms uh, and they, they were defending Ukraine uh, by the force of arms. And actually, it's just no, uh, the, the Russians usually refer to uh, the events of the 2nd of May in Odessa, uh, if you remember, there was an withstanding between the pro-Ukrainian and the the Russians, and actually uh, Russian citizens as well, uh, trying to shake the uh, government authority in in Odessa and to uh, to capture Odessa, actually to annex Odessa in such a way. Uh, but actually, uh, when those pro-Russians were killed uh, in in uh, trade union building, which is strategy for sure. But it was a sort of a, a signal or sign for all Odysseys uh, that uh, the Russians are preparing to, to convert Odessa into Donetsk and Lugansk in, in this term. I mean, the occupied territory with uh, no rules, uh, with, with uh, brutal force being applied to anyone uh, who does not agree with, with, with those with arms and with uh, this uh, double-headed uh, eagle on their... Um, and this in signature. So uh, uh, Odessa was saved uh, uh, with the lives of those pro-Russians who were killed there. It's a pity to say, but uh, I believe it's a, it's a much uh, more acceptable price than uh, we've seen and we paid in Donetsk Lugansk. 14,000 of Ukrainians uh, has been killed uh, during this war uh, that, uh, that Russia is waging against Ukraine. Well, Alexander, I really thank you for joining us today on Ukraine Watch. Well, it's my pleasure. It's been very enlightening, and I really appreciate hearing your opinions and your thoughts on this crisis. Uh, I hope uh, it starts to warm up in uh, Kiev in the next few months and uh, that it remains peaceful. I hope so, but uh, we, we need to prepare to be prepared. And uh, I believe that uh, peace through strength is the only, uh, the only right way how to deal with Russia. Well, thank you again, Alex. Um, thank you. Українське незалежне радіо.